Hey team, welcome to the off-season. The off-season is an exploration of athletic health, recovery, and performance told through stories of athletes and their medical and training team. I hope you enjoy. Now for a quick but mandatory medical disclaimer. This podcast is for general informational purposes only and does not constitute the practice of naturopathic medicine or other professional healthcare services, including the giving of medical advice. No doctor-patient relationship is formed. Use of this material is at user's own risk. Listeners should not disregard or delay in obtaining medical advice for any medical conditions they may have and should seek assistance from their trusted healthcare professional for any condition. This podcast does not speak on behalf of naturopathic medicine and does not represent the views of the profession as a whole. Hey, we're back with another episode of The Offseason. Today I have on Ian Rowan Legg, who is a strength and conditioning coach um, out of Acadia, and he's getting heavily into the performance management of esports. So this one was super interesting to me. The furthest venture I've got into gaming would probably have been Mortal Kombat on Sega Genesis. So the sport has just grown so much and there's so much to consider when we talk about performance optimization. Uh, So for all you gamers out there, I mean, this is stuff that uh, could potentially change your performance. And I think uh, you should definitely take a listen. All of it makes sense to me when we think about how the brain works and how the body works um, and reoxygenating the brain and getting your body moving. And, you know, timing of food is huge, too. So we talk about all of these things uh, to optimize your esport performance. Check it out. I hope you enjoy. Hey, Ian, welcome to the offseason. Hey, how's it going? It's good to be here. Yeah, welcome. It's it's so funny to record. I think I say this on everyone so far, but it's so funny just to see people through computer screens instead of face to face. Yeah, I was wondering that as well when I initially contacted you, but it definitely makes more sense um, trying to stay inside and limiting contact here. But I've been on enough Zoom calls the past month or so, and I think I'm used to the drill at this point. So it's all good. Yeah, I um we have a bunch of like staff meetings and stuff for work and we kept running out of time on the zoom meetings because i think like if you don't have a membership there are only a certain amount of time so i just bought the, or bit the bullet and invested so now we can chat for hours about whatever we want <laughs> yeah that's probably a good call um because i know they've been getting a ton of ton of people using the platform so it's probably a good move from a business pr- perspective on their part so yeah good call yeah, I wish I invested in Zoom before all this happened, but, you know, you can't go back. You don't know, right? Yeah, oh, no, exactly. Yeah. Awesome. Why don't you tell everyone who you are? Yeah, so my name is Ian Rowanleg. I am the head strength and conditioning coach with United Dartmouth Soccer Club, and I'm also a assistant slash lead strength and conditioning coach at Acadia University, uh, working with the men's and women's soccer team, the women's volleyball team, and assisting with women's rugby. Awesome. You got a full uh, docket there, hey? Yeah, yeah. It's uh, been an interesting journey um, because I started, I did my undergrad at Acadia where I was a student athletic therapist uh, in the kinesiology program, but they also have like an exercise science and training practicum. So I was part of that as well, which gave me the opportunity to kind of see both sides of training um, in the gym and then from kind of the injury prevention recovery side of things. And then kind of leaving there, I realized that I wanted to be in strength and conditioning, uh, but I also wanted to kind of up my education, um, kind of build my resume a bit from there as well. So um, from there, I went out west to do my master's. Uh, I was working with the football team at the University of Regina. And then now 
you know, I kind of realized that I like the East coast a little bit more than being out of the prairies came back here and, you know, kind of found myself a position or starting position at Acadia. And then through a friend, I started working with, um, the Dharma soccer club as well. So it's been an interesting experience. Um, kind of a variety of athletes, different ages, skill sets. So it's, it's been a, a great learning experience and yeah, I'm looking forward to kind of being part of this, uh, this upcoming season here. Definitely. It's so many, like once you have the education down, all the opportunities that come with it are, are so awesome and like where life is going to take you. It's always such an adventure. Hey. Yeah. And I find like, you know, especially being in this field, it's, it's very applied and, I think that's something you realize as you get to the end of, you know, your undergraduate education is when you're put in this applied setting, um, you're not always as confident as you are in the classroom and being able to apply that knowledge and those skill sets um, is a lot tougher than it seems. You know, I've, I've known some very smart people that have gone on to be, you know, physio physiotherapists and they don't demonstrate the same level of comfort in that setting, at least initially when you're transitioning from, from class, uh, classroom to field. So, you know, going out West and having that opportunity to continue training athletes, especially a football team, uh, which was initially pretty intimidating that allowed me to really apply those skills and build my confidence and coming back here. Um, I think it really built me up a lot and set me up to kind of work with all these teams and know how stressful it can be to, you know, be coaching for four or five hours in a row and stuff like that. So yeah, it's, it's been a really cool experience. Yeah. That's such a huge comment. Um, I know when I finished dietetics initially and, and having your first one-on-one -on -one patients, it's such a different ball game when, you know, there's no, there's no one to ask questions to after and you have to sort everything out yourself. And then in naturopathic medicine, we do kind of a year long residency at the end of the program. Um, but you still always have that backbone of support. Like there's still resident uh, advisors and all that sort of stuff that make sure obviously that you're not going to hurt anyone, but yeah, getting out on your own and not having that, that sounding board can be difficult sometimes. Hey. Oh yeah, for sure. And you know, when I started this position at the U of R, uh, when I first started working with the football team, basically one of our first, I think it was our first session, actually, I was with this guy who was the new kind of head strength and conditioning coach for the team or a lead strength and conditioning coach. And he got to this first session and he basically looked at me and said, all right, go. I was like, Oh, well, you know, I'm this grad assistant coming in, but I was kind of expected to, you know, lead a lot of the sessions and do majority of the coaching, which was tough at the time, because even though I did have that experience, the athletes definitely expect a lot of you. And I think if you can't, again, confidently display that experience, athletes see through that fairly quickly. Um, so yeah, it was kind of big for me coming in and it was a bit of a trial by fire. But when I came out, I felt, you know, so much better about who I was as a strength coach. And um, I think there's a lot that people can take from that practical experience. You know, education is super important, but being able to apply that is, is huge. Yeah, I agree wholeheartedly. And I think that's a really good lesson for people coming out of school right now to know that, you know, you may be able to memorize the book, but trying to convey it and apply it is a, such a different skill set. And um, the ones who just kind of are born with it are super lucky, but it takes some time to develop your own style. What would you kind of say that your style is when working with athletes? Um, you know, I kind of started out in 
well, I guess I played a lot of sports kind of coming through school. Towards the end, I was in rugby powerlifting mostly. Um, and, you know, even though those are very like kind of tough and intense sports, I was never a really, really vocal individual. I was pretty, pretty quiet. Um, you know, I think that I had a lot to contribute, but actually kind of vocalizing that and getting it across to athletes was difficult at times. Um, because I consider myself to be like a decently smart person, but you realize that when you're working with athletes, they don't understand this, this knowledge to the depth that you do. And so as much as you want to let them know that, you know, you know what you're talking about and you're smart, the best way to actually get that across is to dumb it down and make it easier to understand. And so I found that through more coaching, I've realized that I don't necessarily have to be really loud and vocal as long as I can be very clear about the message and the feedback that I'm sending and making sure it makes sense to them. Because I've seen strength coaches that try to be the smart guy. And as much as, you know, I may come across as, you know, this guy knows what he's talking about. At times it almost looks like you're, you're flexing knowledge on them because ultimately they come out of that with, with virtually nothing because they don't understand what you're trying to say. Um, and so I think kind of the big thing for me is not necessarily being overly vocal, but being very effective in the language that you use. Um, and so that, I think that's been kind of a big, big thing for me. That's so awesome. And, and especially that you kind of know your style as well. Um, I also find kind of in peace to that is, you know, reading all of this research and all the new stuff that's coming out and all the new technologies, the application part is just so huge. So no matter what we learn or what we pull from studies, is it going to work for that athlete? And I think um, that translation of information or really understanding your athletes enough to be able to pick and choose what applies to them is huge, hey? Yeah, you know, context is everything. Um, and I think, you know, there's definitely with certain individuals, a disconnect when it comes to actually interpreting research and applying it. I think we have to understand whenever we read a study, you know, outside of just the validity of it, um, how it applies to our situation. You know, we can have a, an eight week study that showed um, training to failure, increased strength. And what we need to understand is, well, this is an eight week period um, of training for, you know, individuals with, little training status how does that apply to an athlete that's going to go through a four-year program four years of development in the peak of their career basically and how do we kind of you know uh, incorporate or manage fatigue on top of that if we're working to failure all the time how do we um, understand that this is going to work for us yeah, definitely. And I think like the adaptation versus recovery piece is huge. So all of these things coming down the line, like Wim Hof breath work and cryotherapy and cold tubs and, um, you know, when to apply heat, when to apply cold, like it's just, it's all so nuanced. And I think, um, you know, social media is a double-edged sword. We see all this stuff that looks cool, but when we really want to apply it, it's like, are you trying to adapt to your surroundings to grow and change or are you trying to recover from um, what you just put your body through to be able to get ready for the next event and those outcomes are so different hey oh yeah absolutely and um, I think there's definitely you know especially with with younger athletes they don't understand 
you know, what it really means to kind of prepare or train yourself for, for long-term results. Um, you know, we get these rookies in the gym that are, you know, they, they start getting some pretty significant strength gains in the first, you know, six months or so. And they think, well, I'm adding weight on the bar every other week. I can just do this for four years straight, <laughs> which is definitely not the case. You know, as you get more trained, your body becomes more efficient at, you know, using those muscles, which means when you actually perform this exercise, you're accumulating more stress. And then, you know, as you become more trained and as you kind of get beat down by the sport itself and the amount of training they have to go through, suddenly you're not actually able to tolerate the same amount of volume, the same amount of consistent intensity. And so I think that, you know, it's unfortunate that as athletes kind of go through injuries and go through this accumulation of stress, of stress that they realize, hey, maybe I should be thinking more about you know, my recovery, maybe my sleep, what I'm eating. Um, but I think education is a huge piece of that. It's unfortunate that athletes kind of have to experience this first to really understand what it means to focus on recovery. But, you know, it's, it's definitely part of our job as strength coaches to make sure that these athletes understand holistically what's occurring and how we can maximize performance in the long term. Yeah, definitely. I probably sound like a broken record. I talk about it all the time, but the difference between like longevity versus um, optimal performance are kind of like two completely different realms. So um, within that, like as long as the athlete understands that this is probably not going to always equate to longevity, but it's going to get you to where you want to go is, is one thing. But then as a practitioner, as a coach, you always want to make sure that you're keeping that longevity piece in mind. So everything's like as safe as it can possibly be, possibly be. And like for UFC fighters and stuff like that, like if they have to do a cut, you want to do it as safe as possible. um, Despite that whole concept, not being really functional towards longevity. Right. Do you find you run into that quite a lot in what you do? Yeah. And, you know, I can even understand that, especially when I was competing in powerlifting, you know, that was, even though I wasn't competing at a really high level, the most important thing to me was getting better, getting stronger. And that meant, you know, eating a ton of food, putting on the weight that I needed to put on, um, going in the gym, you know, at the time for me, if I could not be in pain during my lift, but be in pain the entire rest of the day, that was fine with me. As long as I can get in the gym and lift, that was, that was all that mattered. Um, and, you know, I'd be in there for two or three hours, which, you know, fast forward now, neither of those things are, sust- or are sustainable. Sorry. Um, I can't take three hours out of my day to lift because I've got other things to do. And then the other side of that, you know, I've got other, th- I have other things to do. I can't just be in pain all the time. I can't go out with my family. I can't go outside and enjoy, you know, going on walks if my body just sucks. And that was the body that I kind of needed for lifting at the time. But, you know, being strong at the age of 22 and being able to do that is a lot different than trying to do that at 30 years old. Um, There's a really good post by Matt Wenning, a pretty well-known powerlifter, who said, um, the sooner you learn to train, fuck that up, I can't remember the quote off the top of my head, it's going to keep going. Um, (laughs) uh, But yeah, so I think it's, 
it's really important to understand that how you train at a certain time in your life isn't going to be sustainable forever. And our body is going to kind of tell us that as we move on. And that's something that I've learned the more I've trained. Um, but yeah, it's, it's something that most athletes will realize at some point. Yeah, definitely. And it's just about like listening to your body. And I think most athletes and you probably have the same mindset as I do is like growing up, it was throughout sport. It was bigger, stronger, faster. Like you get hurt, you get back as soon as possible. Um, you know, like our headspace was just so driven to perform and driven for excellence that it's really hard to learn that lesson of slowing down and taking care of yourself. But as soon as you do, you're going to see such longevity in your ability to, um, do the sport. So I think, I wish there was just like a looking glass that you could give athletes sometime and be like, Hey, just check this out. Like, I promise you, you're going to get such um, better gains long-term if you take it easy today, or if you um, really listen to your heart rate variability and say like, Hey, don't train today because we're cons- we see something wonky here, you know, or um, especially for female athletes, we see like low energy availability uh, oftentimes, like they're not eating enough food and, and the detrimental long-term effects of that are, you know, complications with fertility. And then we're going to see, um, potentially bone mineral density changes which could lead down the road to osteoporosis and like you know easy fractures and stuff like that so there's so many nuances and I think that that's where like our jobs come in to be able to guide the athlete as best as possible so how did you get passionate about this or why did you pick this job yeah so that's a good question um you know when I first started um interesting enough I started kind of lifting weights, weight training in high school. Um, I went to King's Edgefield School, just like a private school, boarding school, prep school, very intense. Um, but they actually had a gym on campus and that's kind of where I started lifting weights because I finally had access to a facility. And I realized that it was something that I really enjoyed. I started to see improvements um, kind of in my body, my physicality and you know, as kind of growing up through sports, I was a pretty decent athlete. I wouldn't say I was like top tier, but I was, I was pretty good for the amount of work that I put in. But it was one of those things where when I went to the gym and I worked hard, I directly saw results. Um, you know, technicality is, of sport aside, it's, it's one of those areas where it really doesn't necessarily matter how could you are at a sport, it, it just levels the playing field for everyone, which I thought was really interesting, kind of brings it back down to um, how much work you're willing to put in. And, you know, obviously there's a huge genetic component in the, the way you're going to lift in the gym, how explosive you're going to be, but kind of leveling the play, playing field from a physical standpoint was really interesting to me. And I found myself kind of getting better and getting better than certain athletes that were maybe better than me from a technical standpoint, but when it came to actually raw strength and power on the field, I had that advantage. And then when I was trying to figure out basically what to do with my life, I found out there's a degree where you get to study anatomy and physiology and Hey, I can kind of study this for school, which is, which is really cool at the time. I didn't even know this degree existed. So yeah, I went to Acadia and I was, I was playing rugby at the time, still kind of lifting weights and figuring out the exact direction I wanted to go with the program. I, I thought about physio for a while. Um, but this was kind of where my, my team sport career ended. And this was something I hadn't thought about 
for a while until recently is the last coach that I had with rugby kind of kind of brought down my experience in the end of my career there. He was, he was pretty negative and very critical in a lot of ways. And I think that's okay for some athletes, but it wasn't something that I kind of managed very well. And so it really, it really brought down my, my confidence. I would say that's a big thing, you know, throughout my career competing in sports was just my confidence um, on the court or on the field. And so when I kind of went, you know, had this experience with this coach, I was really unmotivated to keep going. But when it came to lifting weights, it was something that lifting was something that gave me a lot of confidence because, you know, I enjoyed it. I was pretty good at it. And I enjoyed kind of helping other people that I saw in the gym and seeing how their confidence improved as they got stronger and got better. And so I realized that, you know, outside of just making someone physically better, there's so much that we can bring to an athlete mentally when it comes to lifting weights and allowing them to improve, um, you know, whether they're the most gifted person on the field or not, we can allow them, we can give them this prescription that's going to make them better from a physical standpoint and ultimately make them a better athlete, make them a more competent athlete. And so, yeah, I think that's the biggest thing that I can provide to someone is not just the opportunity to get better physically, but to just um, grow mentally as well and improve that confidence. That's so sweet. And that kind of goes back to your style of um, what seems to be like a little bit quiet, but really getting your point across. And I see um, a lot of your social media posts, like you're really trying to like break down the physiology into some sort of way that people can see it and be like oh I, I finally get that concept you know um and i think that's so awesome so if you guys have the opportunity to go follow him definitely do so and we met on uh instagram um so you kind of reached out and you had some really great ideas about you know the off season or this perpetual off season that we're in right now um do you want to walk us through a little bit of that or like what you would be um suggesting to athletes right now and especially with all of the changes and all of the cancellations like what would if you were kind of in their shoes or if you were their coach what would you be telling them to do yeah so typically when we get in the off season um we have virtually from may until mid-August depending on when uh, your camp starts if you have a kind of end of summer camp or if your sport starts a little later you may have some more time but generally we have three and a half four months and so typically for that first anywhere from four to six weeks we are going to be going through pretty much a volume kind of accumulation phase where we're not lifting quite as much load but we're doing more reps, more sets to kind of help adapt those tissues um, to stress, get those uh, muscle fibers stronger. This is generally where, where we're going to get a bit more hypertrophy because we're kind of working those muscles a little closer to failure, allowing them to accumulate more metabolic stress. And then we can kind of take that as we move through the off season and do more strength work because now that we've made the fibers bigger and stronger, they can tolerate more load. So when we teach the body to actually activate those fibers to a greater extent, we can move more weight. And then from there, as we get closer to season, we're generally going to transition into more power work. Um, some more high velocity explosive work that is generally more um, replicable in most sports, most explosive uh, or powerful sports. Um, but the issue with kind of this off season is that we're missing 
virtually that whole foundational stage where we can kind of prepare the fibers um, and our tissues for the stressors of sport. And so we're kind of in this situation where we have to decide, at least when we get back to training, where should we be kind of putting our focus? Do we want to take ourselves through a bit of volume accumulation that's not going to quite give us as much performance carryover? Do we want to just go right into strength power? Um, but the thing is now we also don't have access to facilities or most people don't. And so where a lot of people I think are going with this absence of gym is we're just doing a ton of reps and a ton of different exercises. And while this is volume, it's not exactly equal to the volume that we're going to get under a load. Um, we can perform a lot of reps with low load, but when it comes to a, a sports setting, we're generally going to be experiencing high force. And so all these reps can be great for kind of preparing tissues to an extent and kind of building our capacity, but it's not exposing us to, to high forces. And that's what we have to be resilient to ultimately. So uh, what we've done is we kind of think about what we're missing out on and then how we can really, um, what we can do without equipment to get that same adaptation. So in certain cases, we are doing a little bit more volume rep wise, but we're also doing um, a lot of um, isometrics. So long static holds, um, a big thing we're missing, you know, was that high force. So a big, a big component of like our strength work has been these, uh, these towel ISO holds where you basically just take a towel or some sort of strap, and you hook it up in a position where you're either, you know, pulling or performing some sort of um, like squat movement, deadlift movement, where we're pulling against this towel. And so it allows us to basically produce as much force as possible uh, without any weight, but it's going to be in a static, a static position. So we'll basically get people in different positions, pulling against this towel, allowing them to pull as hard as they can, produce as much force as possible and then get them in different um, ranges in those movements because we understand that, or at least the research shows that when we perform a static hold, we're only getting um, strength increases in about 15, 20 degrees, give or take in that position. So using different ISO holds in different positions to kind of prepare our tissues for max force in different positions. On top of that, uh, we know that speed is a variable that drops off very quickly. And it's also um, a form of training that exposes us to high force. So um, the way our training is set up now, I guess this might be an easier way to explain it, is we have each team uh, basically on five or six days of training. So our frequency is higher just because the overall stress we're getting from that session is going to be lower. And then it's kind of like a high-low setup the way we're doing it. So we have days where we're working on, you know, more power acceleration in our sprint work. And then we've got our different, you know, body weight exercises, ISO holds. And then other days where we're going to be doing more, you know, top speed work, which is generally higher stress. We'll have ISO holds in there. We may even have um, different like depth drops, depth jumps, because, you know, that high eccentric loading, especially on a single limb is a lot higher than people think it is. Um, so that's a way we can kind of expose our athletes to higher stress without actually having higher load, just kind of manipulating variables. 
And then we'll have conditioning to various degrees um, for different sports, depending on what their demands are. And then, you know, we kind of also have this separation between um, collision sports. So that's like rugby, football, and then our contact sports, which are, you know, like soccer, basketball. And then we've got our kind of uh, stopwatch sports. So like our distance running track sports. And so depending on the sport, we kind of have a different amount of, you know, upper body work in there depending on the demands and what they have to be prepared for. Um, but, you know, all of this comes back to basically trying to expose our athletes to those same stressors without having load. And a lot of this comes down to um, kind of increasing acceleration in a lot of those scenarios. Um, and then obviously the max force with those, those isometrics. I know that was a lot there, but. No, know. I think it's really good. And I think like, you know, to summarize, it's, it's kind of like making something from nothing a little bit, right? And, and you have to assume that most of the athletes have nothing. So you have to build it based on that. And um, anyone who knows the science will know exactly what you're talking about. And anyone who doesn't know will probably pick up a thing or two there of, of maybe things that they can do at home to, um, you know, start working on their strength as well. Uh, for the athletes, you said like kind of one of your goals with picking up this profession was uh, the motivation piece of things. Have you been noticing like a pretty significant drop off with your athletes or are they, you know, highly primed despite what's going on? Yeah. So it's, it's kind of different based on the team. I know, you know, we've got a very successful women's basketball team at Acadia and they've been really good about, you know, getting on zoom calls every now and then and having these team workouts. Um, and realistically we've only really just started our off season uh, just because exams go through kind of April there. And so it's you know, May 13th. So we basically had a couple weeks of off season training so far. Compliance isn't great with some teams. Um, and I think a lot of the time that comes down to the culture among the team. I think that really has to start at the top, um, depending on the role that the strength coach has in your institution. I think sometimes teams really see them almost the same as, you know, like a, a head coach or like a coordinator position. Other times it's, you know, you're going to go do your workout and this is the guy that's leading the lift basically. Um, so we've had better compliance with certain teams. I think we found that teams that are generally good with compliance and good with training in season or when we're actually at our facility are, you know, reflecting that in their training now, but we do have individual cases where athletes aren't quite staying on track um, that have been good when we're at the school. So I think, I think for a lot of athletes, it's just tough to stay motivated when you're not with your team in that team setting and not exposed to the same type of training. You know, when we have to replace like a heavy, a heavy barbell split squat with a long tempo split squat, it's really tough to stay motivated and count. Okay. Five, four, three, all the way down to the bottom and then up for several reps. I think it's hard to see the same carryover and so maybe athletes just aren't as motivated because they don't think they're getting the same results um but research would show that we can get a lot of results from this maybe not to the same extent but we are getting a benefit from this and so i think it just has to come down to team culture and a mix of the coaches strength coaches and then even the captains leaders on that team kind of taking charge and 
helping everyone on the team understand that they're going to benefit from this going into the season. Definitely. And I think, yeah, that keeping that motivation is, is so difficult. And even to apply this to the general population, I think it's good to hear that, you know, even high level athletes are struggling with this. Like it's such a, a weird time and, and not being able to, you know, reach out to your other teammates or for general population, like you're, your gym friends, you know, it's, it's hard on everyone. So I think it's really good to get the relative um, understanding that everyone's struggling right now, you know, and motivation um, is something that, you know, is a term that gets tossed around a lot. But I think like in the deepest, darkest hour, like what is your why to like keep doing things right and, and figuring that out is huge. And of course, there's going to be off days and there's going to be days where, um, you know, you don't want to do those, those lifts or the counts and stuff like that. So um, I think like as coaches and whether it be a health coach or a lifestyle coach, like really pushing out and trying to derive what the why is or why these athletes would even work so hard. Like what are they working towards? So I think for anyone listening out there, if you can kind of, if you're in general population and you're not working towards anything, like start developing these things. And then for athletes too, like this is a huge change up. Olympics have been moved, events have been moved. So what is your new why? Like writing that down and really figuring out um, what keeps you motivated when no one's watching too, hey? Yeah, I think that's a really good point, actually, just being able to self-reflect. Um, and there was someone who posted the other day, actually. Um, I think it was kind of a strategy. I want to say the British rowing team or something wasn't doing overly well. And so basically every decision they made from there, that point out was, will this make the boat go faster? And if the answer was no, then they took a different approach. And so I think when it comes to training and, or any decision you're going to make, you know, if I know being at home, kind of some of our eating habits are probably way off. And so if you find yourself reaching into the pantry and grabbing a bag of chips, you know, will this make the boat go faster? Will this make me a better athlete? when we actually go to compete. And I think this applies year round as well, but you know, it's, it's important for us to understand that even though we have time off, we really don't have time off. You know, it's, it's, it's still the same. It's still May. We should still be training. And so, um, yeah, I think we just need to be really accountable. And if we can get, you know, our friends, our teammates to help keep us accountable and vice versa, then, uh, we set ourselves up for success. Yeah, definitely. Um, so goodness knows what's going to happen after this, but uh, what are some things you're kind of starting to think about or starting to monitor for athletes um, as they move back into sport or back into training? Like what are the key things that you want to watch out for? Yeah. So I guess right away when it comes to compliance, um, already knowing that we're not quite getting the same adaptation and trading stimulus going into the season it's really important for us to monitor compliance because if we've got athletes that aren't doing any training at all and then they come back then they're even less prepared than those athletes that were doing all their their body weight and speed work and so they're going to be immediately at a higher risk for injury and so we're actually kind of making a couple different programs not that we want this to be the situation, but based on compliance, we're going to have more general adaptation programs for those individuals that maybe didn't quite train as hard um, going into the season. So we can 
just kind of lead them in a little better. Cause the last thing we want, um, aside from getting hurt in the sport itself is to get someone in the gym thinking that they're prepared to lift these weights and then they're not. And we, we end up being the ones that hurt them, which is the opposite of what we want to be doing. Um, and I think as we get back, we need to really be monitoring, um, you know, acute and chronic workload. That's something that I've been looking into a little bit more, uh, recently. So, um, already we are, sorry, we already do a pretty good job of monitoring fatigue throughout the year. Uh, we've got these great devices called gym awares. And so we can measure, um, we can measure different jumps. We can measure bar velocity. So we can measure drops in power. And because these kind of components of performance are heavily regulated by the central nervous system, if we see drops here, we understand that there's some sort of central fatigue going on. Uh, but then other things, as I kind of mentioned, acute and chronic workload ratios. So this is basically a way of kind of combining internal and external loading into kind of this arbitrary value, this arbitrary number. And so that we can better prepare the work they do in a given week um, over kind of a longer, a longer time span. So how it works is you basically multiply the uh, number of minutes you're performing an activity for by a sessional RPE. So you'd have the athlete gauge how hard that session was on a scale of one to 10, and that's going to give you a value. And then, so you'll do this every day for a week and you'll take an average, you get an av average value in that arbitrary unit. And then you can compare that to a four week span. Four weeks is kind of the average we typically use for that. So over that four week span, we take, an average of those values and then see how that acute workload uh, corresponds to that, that chronic value. And there's two ways we can kind of do this. So when we look at acute to chronic ratio, we want that value to typically be between 0.8 and 1.3. That's kind of our sweet spot for this is enough stress to get better, but not enough to hurt us. Anything below 0.8, or above 1.5 is typically a danger zone for us. Either they're not getting trained enough or they're doing too much work. And then when you actually look at that ratio, there's, there's two models actually that you can use. One is called a rolling average. And that's basically what I kind of just discussed was dividing that acute by the chronic and getting a value. The issue with that is it basically assumes that there's a linear relationship between injury and workload, which is generally not going to be the case. So what we also have is this, let's call it an exponentially weighted moving average. And what this does is it actually places more kind of weight or importance in the most recent sessions. And so it, be it better takes into account this kind of slow decay in fitness versus just drop-offs that may be reflected in the rolling average. And so a good example is if you have, say an individual that's running 30 kilometers a week for four weeks, and then in the fifth week they get injured or sick and they only end up running seven kilometers, but then they're better the next week and they get back to the regular 30 kilometers. What that rolling average is going to see is that when, um, when the workload drops, it basically says, oh, well, the body was only capable of performing this much work. This is where our fitness is at. 
And then when you jump back up to 30 the next week, it's going to think that this was a huge shock to the body, even though it was kind of just a specific scenario. So our acute to chronic workload is going to be um, basically a lot lower than it should be realistically, but with the exponentially weighted um, moving average, even though our workload is low in that one week, it's basically going to look back to the week before and say, Hey, well, our fitness was here. We were able to cover 30 kilometers last week. So this probably isn't our maximum potential. And so um, for that week, it's actually going to make our acute to chronic ratio a little bit higher. And then as we get into the next week, it's going to recognize that this wasn't quite the shock to your body that um, the rolling average actually depicted. So I know that was a bit of a long explanation, but that's something that we can actually use to really take both the subjective measure. So how they say they're feeling and then with the actual distance they're covering and get a value, even though it is kind of an arbitrary number, um, there is some pretty solid research to support that for kind of tracking and monitoring fatigue. Ian, you're a nerd like me. I love it. <laughs> I'm trying here. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, like that's, that's so awesome. And I think it's so amazing, like how many resources there are um, out there to like optimize performance and really understand what's happening with an athlete. And like for CNS fatigue, we can look at nutrition, sleep quality, um, breath work, all that sort of stuff too. So there's, there's so much out there that goes into it. And then um, as you said, when you initially chose this profession, it's, it's that one-on-one, -on -one. it's the motivation for that individual athlete and like understanding them on you know their most basic level to take into consideration their lifestyle and where their headspace is at with all of this and and then applying all of the research to that yeah yeah exactly um and you know even going back to kind of the motivation piece um you know i always thought kind of coming up in sports that i really wanted to work with athletes and i i definitely do don't get me wrong but I think, you know, really working with anyone and being able to improve anyone's confidence overall is so huge. When I was in, when I was at the U of R, I did this, um, this powerlifting exercise class, which is a little intimidating for a lot of people. Um, Cause you know, you see the name powerlifting, you think we're going to be lifting heavy weights. And, you know, that was part of my goal was to teach people to lift heavy and to lift heavy safely. And a number of the people I had in that class were, were females. A couple of them were in their thirties, mid thirties. And I had this, this one woman who didn't know anything about weightlifting when she came in. And by the time she left, she was actually moving some decently heavy weight with good technique. And, you know, every time she would lift the weight, she was like, wow, I, I can't believe I could do that. I got this email probably a week after the class ended this big, long email about how she felt, you know, so empowered. And she never thought that, you know, being a woman, she could be strong. And this, that was like really big for me because I never saw myself as having that connection with someone like that. And so it, it kind of helped me understand that, you know, there's so much value and reward and really helping anyone. And I think it justified to me, you know, that this was the right place for me because no matter who I work with, I understand that I can improve their life and it's, it's value. It's valuable to them, but it's super rewarding to me as well. And so that was just like a big realization I've had. And that has happened actually a couple more times 
um, since then. And it's, it's just been really awesome. Buddy, you're preaching in the choir on that one. Like I always say, you know, I, I do sports medicine and stuff, but when I talk about athletes, it's, it's exactly what you said. Anyone who's willing to get better or, or, um, you know, or is going to take the motivation or the tools that we kind of lay out and actually practically apply them. Um, and that's what makes our job so awesome and so fun. Hey. Yeah, it's amazing. And I think, you know, if you're a new strength coach in the field and whether you want to work, I think this especially applies to people that work at a really, or want to work at a really high level is don't discredit any opportunity to get better, whether it's a personal training job, whether you're working with youth athletes everything is an opportunity to get better because it's exposure to something different and any sort of more variety you can get in the exposure in your experience the better you're going to be because you learn how to kind of account for different variables and deal with different situations and that's why you know it's so important to be a really good generalist you know if you're really good at just the foundation of what you do chances are you can apply that specifically to any other area. Um, you know, there's a lot of strength coaches that will specialize in some sport or some area and that's fine. But I think any strength coach that's just really good at applying basic principles can do a good job at wherever they go, assuming they understand how to apply those principles. I agree a hundred percent with that. That's such good. Um, knowledge to kind of share and that's always my last question that's what I was going to ask you as a last question so my next last question has to be have you been to uh, Truro Sevens you know there's a (laughs) lot of rugby people that are going to be mad at me about this I have not um I all my friends go this I'm not like a huge drinker I've never been one to like drink a lot which is probably surprising Um, being involved with rugby and the drinking culture that surrounds the sport. I have not been there. I probably will go eventually. um, But it's, it is a really great time from, from what I've heard. Um, Really great weekend. And, you know, that's rugby is, is definitely an area I want to stay in as well. I'm really happy to be working with the rugby team at Acadia just because it's got such a great culture surrounding it. Um, but yeah, I'll make it up there one of these years. We'll see. <laughs> that sounds good. Yeah, my uh, my husband plays rugby and you guys actually played together a while back, didn't you? Yeah, yeah. We played in Windsor together. I played for a couple of years after after I graduated high school, actually. So yeah, that's how I met met him. That was that was funny. I saw you, you tagged him in one of your stories. It's like, hey, I know that guy. <laughs> how'd you get that catch hey yeah Yeah, that's awesome and like I always hear the best stories out of rugby and it's a super interesting sport and um I guess then if we do have to leave you with a final question what would be your personal rugby highlight oh honestly even playing through university so my first year at Acadia we actually won the maritime championships uh, which is which is pretty huge for us but my biggest win was probably um, my grade 12 year of high school. We won the provincial championship. And that was big for me because when I came to, went into high school, went to that school, I never played rugby before. I played football for three years. They didn't have football because they're very old fashioned. And so I learned to play rugby. And I think it was, you know, I, I lived there as a boarding school as well. So I lived with all these guys and 
we were a really small school, you know, from grade seven to grade 12, we had less than 300 people. So our graduating class was maybe 70 something people. So our, our kind of um, selection for the team was fairly small, but we had to kind of work with what we had. And we worked really hard, you know, for a high school team, we trained five days a week, uh, two or three hours at a time. You know, I was still going to the gym during all this, getting better. And I think, you know, just kind of the accumulation of work over three years and finally seeing that pay off in my last year was just like, oh, it was the best thing ever. It was the best kind of finish to my, my high school career per se. And just to do it with, with my best friends, with these guys that I consider like family to me, that was, that was huge. And that's kind of why I stayed in it um, for the most part is just kind of the, the brotherhood that surrounds the sport and the culture is, is great. That's so awesome. Ian, you're like a wealth of knowledge and I hope a lot of people can pull some, some application through like what you've been talking about today. Um, are you open to people reaching out to you or where can they find you? Yeah, absolutely. Um, Instagram is probably the best place. My handle is perform.irl, perform period, IRL. Um, yeah, reach out to me if you have any questions. I'm happy to help out if you, uh, if you need it. Awesome. Thanks so much for chatting. Thanks for having me on. Appreciate it. Okay, bye-bye.